0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Fest Slow-Mo Nun Soccer Edition. It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2017. On today's show, The Young Pope is the new and, one must say, highly improbable TV show from HBO. It stars Jude Law as a newly chosen pope. He's not just young, but he's also American and brash. Concepts do not go any higher than this. Uh, We'll see whether it flies or crashes. And then A Monster Calls is the story of a young boy visited by a giant yew tree come to life as voiced by Liam Neeson. It also sounds high concept, uh, but it's actually a sweet and excruciating lesson on grief from the Spanish director J.A. Bayona and screenwriter Patrick Ness, who adapted his own novel of the same name. And finally, who are you calling Neanderthal? It turns out everything we thought we knew about our predecessors uh, may be wrong. Joining me today is uh, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana.
1: Hello, Stephen.
0: And I'm very pleased to announce we're joined today by um, Sam Anderson, the extremely very extra special friend of the program. Sam Anderson is a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine. Sam, welcome.
2: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I feel like I won some kind of fan contest or something.
0: Well, we feel the same way, Sam. Huge fans of your work, and it is uh, such a pleasure to have you here. Dana, before um, before we dig in, surely we have some business?
1: Uh, Yes, I'm today's Julia, I guess. So I'm I'm announcing our business. Uh, My first piece of business is about a Slate event that if you live in New York or will be in New York on January 25th, you should consider attending. I think I'm going to go. It sounds fascinating not the new normal, how the media should cover the Trump presidency. And it's essentially a discussion among journalists about what lies ahead during after the inauguration for for journalism. And uh, our own beloved Julia Turner will be there as part of the discussion, as will Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of the Slate Group, David Remnick of The New Yorker, and also Lydia Polgreen, recently of The New York Times, now at Huffington Post, and many other journalists if you want to get your bearings about what's happening in the fourth estate and the Trump era, consider going to that event. It's Wednesday, January 25th. It's at 7.30 p.m. at the Skirball Center at NYU. You can get more information at Slate.com slash live. And my only other announcement is that our Slate Plus segment today, thanks to you, Steve, is going to be about a post that you wrote for the TheNewYorker.com about the philosopher Richard Rorty. And uh, it was to read you in that context and both sam and i had a lot of questions about it so we're going to grill you about foucault richard rorty and philosophy in the 21st century you ready
0: i got my 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 philosopher pants on (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) incredible
2: (laughs) to be here when the magic happens is amazing
1: (laughs) so if you want to hear steve put his philosopher pants on and and strut his stuff you should become a Slate Plus member, <laughs> you can do that by going to slate.com slash culture plus.
0: And for the record, they're leather chaps. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I take this very, very seriously. Um, all right. Why don't we dig in? Paolo Sorrentino uh, made a movie that I more or less idolized, The Great Beauty. And he's now created the new lavish and lavishly weird HBO show called The Young Pope. It stars Jude Law as Lenny Bellardo, a Brooklyn priest who, thanks to some obscure Vatican machinations, has been named... The new Pope, Lenny, is young, telegenic. He's supposed to be a puppet. But it turns out he's a backstage martinet and a man with some virtually medieval notions about the Catholic Church. Let's listen as he wakes up as the pontiff. Let's listen to a clip.
1: Not knowing your tastes, Your Holiness, we took a liberty of preparing a little of everything. Didn't anyone
0: tell you I don't eat much?
1: Hardly anything, in
0: fact. All I have in the morning is a cherry
1: Coke Zero. We will get some right away. What's your name? Dominion, Your Holiness. I'm your Holiness's Majordomo. Do you know what
0: Doman means? One who belongs to God. Precisely, so by transitive property. You belong to me. How did you sleep, Your Holiness? I had an amusing dream. <laughs> Cardinal Oza Lynch, Cardinal Ligieri were slapping each other, and I said the most outrageous things to the crowd in St. Peter's Square. Well then. I'll wait
2: here for my Cherry Coke Zero.
1: <laughs> I mean, is there any reviewing that needs to be done? No. The young Pope needs this Cherry Coke Zero. Right. I'm watching.
0: I mean, Sam, let me begin with you. I mean, do we even begin with qualitative issues or do we, do we go straight to how did this ever pass the uh, gatekeepers? I mean, this one's really peculiar. What did you make of it?
2: It is peculiar. Um, and I think that clip contains a lot of what I actually enjoyed about it, um, which was less the high concept uh, modern pope with iPhone um, yanking the church back into medieval style tyrannical rule and more kind of like a quirky comedy that snuck its way into every little character and every little line of dialogue. I think I laughed. I think every character in the show made me laugh. In a different way, there's such comedy that they ring out of like the accents of people and the faces of people and and the way these characters, these foreign characters speaking to this American Pope, sort of handle the English in their mouths like their mouths are full of pudding and um it, all these fantastical little gestures out of place and it it just it really made me laugh all the
0: way through. Dana, um, it made me laugh too, but I strongly suspected that I was not laughing with, I was laughing at. What about you?
1: Well, that is the the question with the young Pope, right? It's, it's the intention question. And the fact that this was made by Paolo Sorrentino, who made The Great Beauty, really is sort of remarkable because I think, Steve, my biggest criticism of that movie when we talked about it on this show was the seriousness with which it took itself and that it had this, it was very beautiful, incredibly beautifully mounted and, you know, a, a great sort of portrait of Rome and of various social types in Rome and actually had some of the faces and voices and that mm-hmm. breadth of humanity that Sam mentioned. But it was... Serious. It sort of took itself seriously as a work of art. And The Young Pope seems to be completely campy, although having seen only one and a half episodes, I can't quite tell whether actual attempts at drama will develop at some point. Its entire gambit, as as far as I can see so far, has been to create that kind of dissonance of you know Jude Law, the Brooklyn-accented Pope, asking for a cherry Coke Zero, and at one point coaxing a kangaroo to come out of its cage <laughs> with his I don't know with his his popely powers, mm-hmm. and uh, and then all the, the the backdoor intrigue and everything. I can't tell how Sorrentino is trying to hook people in with this. I feel like, as Steve said, that it's almost. In a way, accidental (laughs) my my love for it that maybe I'm not loving about it what was intended to 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 draw me in, and uh, it it also should be said that I just have a weakness for any sort of narrative involving nuns and priests and hierarchy and pageantry, and this this the show is really good at showing that you know the sort of the the pageantry of life at the Mm -hmm. Vatican,
0: right? Well, it has to be good at that because if you're not getting some of that peep behind the curtain or the balcony or whatever, it really would be kind of worthless, right? I mean, that's sort of the first order thing that it has to deliver. And it does that. It's beautifully shot. You know, it's filmed with Sorrentino's amazing eye, amazing camera. Um, Here's a moment that made me think perhaps it wasn't in on its own joke. There's this moment very early on where Jude Law says, he's praying and he says, Father, Father, why, why have thou forsaken me? And then he pauses and said, Said Jesus just before he was about to die, <laughs> and he, you know, I—I I mean, I suppose you have to footnote that quote. I—I uh, I thought it would be fairly well known, or at least to someone who had never heard it, somewhat self-explanatory. Um, The idea that you have
1: to footnote it to God is particularly (laughs) funny. Well,
0: precisely, right? I mean, like, just unbelievably hammy and weird. I mean, when Diane Keaton, his old nun friend and ally from the United States, comes, you know, to see him and eventually is made basically his his right hand man, she says, "You know, you're about to be made pope. You represent one fifth of the world's population." (laughs) <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying, Lenny? And I, I kind of felt like she was going to actually, in her head, do an exact 20% of the $8 billion just to let us know, you know, that she understood exactly what she was saying. I mean, here's what I can say is that I, I didn't enjoy it. I thought it was silly and, and boring. But, um, you know, a limited series TV faces this kind of interesting problem, Sam, if you think about it, which is that, uh, you know, superbly opulent, well-thought-out, you know, kind of deeply conceived, novelistically conceived television is now the trend um, and um, and yet there's a lot of it and so people produce something quite ambitious and long um, but the patience with which one needs to um, immerse oneself in in it before deciding whether to continue with it you know might actually be quite thin um because there's so much of it. I mean what I would have to choose not to watch in order to connect with Jude Law as the young pope is is really almost as much at issue for me now so i don't I don't have the energy to look through you know the hermeneutics of it and decide whether Paolo Sorrentino are both laughing or just me hmm.
2: I feel like the show is pretty clearly laughing along with us. I mean, to me, it's like it's almost like an 80-20 split, uh, 80 camp, 20 seriousness. And I, I think I have some issues with the 80 and the 20 there. I think the campiness, this kind of it becomes kind of a parlor trick to juxtapose the pageantry and the majesty and the holiness of church rituals and architecture and such with the kind of grotesque. um and sacrilegious things and they're kind of ringing comedy and um, almost like a, a little feeling of scandal a little sort of frisson out of that quite often and it gets a little bit repetitive and it also feels a, a bit familiar and but the like, character
1: of the young pope i would argue does not feel so familiar i mean we've seen a lot of you know tyrannical cable te- television is, is full of tyrannical sure. men lording it over their little worlds but the way that jude law's young pope lords it over his world is is a bit different than a a Tony Soprano dark brooding type, right? I mean, there's a kind of a playful... It's, it's, I guess, part of the camp, but there's this kind of playful sadism in the way mm-hmm. that he he plays with the chess pieces of the Vatican that, to me, was it was a different kind of character. Also, the fact that he doesn't want to be photographed and that his, he's the most telegenic pope of all time, <laughs> right. and yet he's obsessed with keeping his image off of all memorabilia. There's something in this sort of man without qualities pope that mm-hmm. I found fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: I love it, but didn't it raise essential, like, sort of basic credibility issues with you that this, you know— I think if there's one job in the world that we know they've do a lot of vetting for it's pope and it seems as though they've never encountered this guy. They have no idea what his personality is. So it's really literally as if Space Aliens came, aimed the ray gun at Vatican City, and said, You're making this guy Pope. Ha, ha, ha. Um, well, but I don't know how it-
1: many episodes you've seen, but they do start to get, in later episodes, they do start to get into the various machinations that turned him into the Pope.
2: Right. And he he played it with a kind of sociopathic perfection where he just showed no ripple. Uh, that would have tipped them off that he was about to make this giant power play.
0: So the joke is on me here. I mean, I should have known I really quite loved The Great Beauty. I mean, maybe it was something about a septuagenarian man draped in mistresses. Something about that really appealed to me. But you're taken with this. You're going to stick with it.
1: I preferred this to The Great Beauty, honestly. I mean, as as, as visually dazzling as The Great Beauty was, I found like it, it really sagged in the middle. It was extremely long. And except for showing this, you know, raft of decadent types. I wasn't quite sure what it was about. I could, I guess, say the same thing about the young pope, but it asks less of you as well. You know, (laughs) it comes in little bite-sized installments and seems to me like a kind of nice Sunday night antidote to ridiculousness of the week to come. I mean, also purely accidentally, obviously, because Paolo Sorrentino conceived this long before Trump won the election. But it's kind of a vision of you know, a, a madman in power in a way, not quite a madman, but a. how would you describe the Pope's unfitness to rule?
2: Well, he's a sociopath. Um, I think you could call him a narcissist. Uh, he is, it, it comes out in the second episode more. He is psychologically kind of severely damaged by childhood trauma um, and feels profoundly alone. So I think that all has a certain resonance.
1: Yeah, and there's an there's an illegibility to him. I mean, that's what I was getting at with this Pope without qualities thing mm-hmm. that fascinates me is that there's you can't quite predict. You can predict that the next thing that this character will do and that this show will do will be loopy and strange, and right. that it will probably in some way be sacrilegious. But you can't quite predict what his character will do. And I, I found, and I I also love Jude Law in a good juicy kind of psycho role like that. I think one of his greatest roles ever was the first time I ever saw him on screen as as Oscar Wilde's lover in Wilde. Did you mm. ever see that biopic? Mm-hmm. It's one of the best literary biopics I've ever seen. Mm. Stephen Fry plays Oscar Wilde. He's perfect. He looks the part and he understands the words and he has clearly read the books, you know, and he just he plays a great Wilde. And a very young and beautiful Jude Law is Bosie, his his mm-hmm. lover who, you know, who's the, the affair with whom brought him down. Anyway, it, and it's a similar role of him just ruthlessly playing Wilde and all of his other admirers for, for all he can get from them. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what Jude Law is like in real life, but he plays a really good guy who's out only for himself.
2: It's a very precise and controlled, creepy performance. Mm-hmm. And very funny, too. I mean, I think the cadence of that the clip we heard with the cherry Coke zero, just the way he rings sort of comedy and menace out of, out of this brand name cherry Coke zero. I don't know what kind of arrangement they have, but he says it many times it's <laughs> to the point Kevin. that I actually looked for a cherry Coke zero at the store this morning,
0: uh, which I never otherwise would have done in my life. So there you go. Well, it's um, so I, I would call it more sort of less scenery chewing and more scenery licking performance from Jude Law. Um, so if that's, enticing to people. Sam and I
1: just exchanged a very impressed glance at that uh-huh. formulation. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's <laughs> licking the scenery. Um,
0: Sam, you've also learned early in your um, in your tenure here that I'm always wrong about everything. It's the charm of the show.
1: Steve, before we move on to the next segment, can I just make a couple more, pleas? not to you necessarily, but to our listeners, to if they're interested at all, Give the young pope a try. And my only argument is this, Diane Keaton in a nun's habit. Okay. I mean, that in it, in itself is reason to put in at least an hour. She's fantastic in the role. It's great to see her playing someone who's also sort of performing machinations mm-hmm. because she usually plays a very sweet, sort of, you know, sincere, straightforward character. And, uh, and she she just kills in a nun's habit. And the
2: way that her face is kind of perfectly isolated and it's walled off by this habit. Yeah, it's really beautiful.
1: Until she dons the T-shirt in the, is it the second right. episode that says, right. tell me her T-shirt slogan? It
2: says, I'm a virgin, but this is an old shirt. <laughs> <laughs> which which speaks to my earlier point about how sometimes the kind of grotesquerie, I think, goes a little over the top and, and feels a little self-indulgent. At the beginning of episode two, there's this montage of kind of colorful, lurid um, scenes. The camera kind of pans across different apartments of the Vatican, and you see a cross-section of life that's going on that morning. And I wrote down in my notes just the images I was watching as I went by, and this is what my notes say. It says, iPad, butt injection, smoking with oxygen mask, slow-mo nun soccer. (laughs) In parentheses, missing hand, because the nun who's taking the penalty kick at the other nun who's wearing goalie gloves actually has a missing (laughs)
0: hand. Well, it's called The Young Pope on HBO. Um, These two jamokes love it, but uh, check it out and um, come to Facebook.com. Tell me how I'm completely wrong about this. I missed It's uh, hammy campy delights. All right, uh, moving on. A Monster Calls is based on a children's book of the same name. It tells the story of a young Connor O'Malley, a boy whose mother is dying of cancer, and whose father is a lovable and finally self-serving absent presence in his life. For three successive nights, Connor is visited by a yew tree that has come to life as a giant. And the giant will tell Connor three stories, after which Connor will have to tell him one story. And along the way, as we come to understand it, Connor will have to reckon with the fact that neither grief nor life takes definite shape." Let's listen to a clip and to set it up a little bit. Connor is being mercilessly, brutally bullied at school, and uh, during one of those uh, bullying sessions, the monster manifests itself. Let's listen.
1: What suit you so long? It is time for the third tale. There was once an invisible man who had grown tired of being unseen. It was not that he was actually invisible. It was just that people had become used to not seeing him. One day the invisible man couldn't stand it anymore. He kept wondering, if no one sees you, are you really there at all? What did the invisible man do? He called for a monster.
0: Mmm,
2: a Culture Gap Fest. Sometimes the only true way to podcast is not to cast your part at all.
0: <laughs> oh, that's quite good.
2: Thanks. I was doing that on the way out of the home, driving home from the theater so much that my kids were like screaming. In horror. (laughs) And at a certain point it became a safety concern because I got really lightheaded all of a sudden because it just takes so much breath. (laughs) My throat started hurting. I got really lightheaded and I was like, it was becoming unsafe to drive a vehicle.
1: (laughs) But it was worth it to torment your dog. Oh my God. It was
2: so good. I whispered to her halfway through the movie. She's 12. I was like wait until the car after this movie I'm gonna do this impression
0: so hard <laughs> Just like oh my god <laughs> I mean it definitely it sounds to me like you'd already put in your 10,000 hours on Nissan. I mean was it from the Taken movies or something I mean, that's, that's uh, you know
2: good. what it, I think it was probably that wolf movie which I can't oh, remember the, the title I, I just call that
0: movie Punches with Wolves <laughs> uh, <laughs> <clears throat> um, I'm gonna throw this to our film critic Dana Stevens Dana um, I'm dying to know uh, as I always am, what you think of this movie? But especially this time, because I'm just gonna I'm just gonna lay it right out on the dinner table. I love this movie, and it sounds like not very many other people did. But what do you think?
1: Uh, I really liked it. I guess I was a little bit disappointed because I was expecting a bit more of a horror movie. The reason it was my idea that we see this for this week, and the reason I wanted to see it is because the director Juan Antonio Bayona, the Spanish director, made a horror movie that I really love called The Orphanage. This may be a little bit in the wheelhouse of the Babadook, you know, it's one of those psychological horror films where you can't quite tell whether the horror is inside someone's brain or, or is objectively happening in reality. And it's really, really scary. And actually, one of the reasons I wanted to do this a week that Julia was gone is that Julia hates horror movies and gets really scared by them. So I thought we'd put, put it off for a week when she was gone. But this isn't really a horror movie, as it turns out. And it's based, as you say, on a children's book. And it really is, is, is almost a young adult novel and movie form right i mean i agree i thought it was really good and very successful at, it, at what it did i would have liked a little bit more rawness and grit from it but then it probably wouldn't reach its intended audience which is really i think pre-teens and and young teenagers with or without their parents mm-hmm. what did your kids think of it sam you saw it with them
2: uh they both enjoyed it my son is nine my daughter's 12 um and uh, yeah, they both liked it. and I thought it was a solid B plus of a, of a kind of kid's movie. What it had in place of horror was a nice psychological subtlety. I mean, um, the whole movie is sort of uh, you have this recurring nightmare um, that is a little scary, and there's a kind of promise that it will be decoded in the end and it is and it, it I thought it it rung true and it was kind of profound, and it was, you know, I got I got teary at the end. I got as close. To crying as I come to crying at movies?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, even though I could see all the flaws in this movie, I mean, you can't have a movie about a boy losing his mother and not cry at some point if it's decently well done, and this movie really was. The mother is also played by Felicity Jones, and she did a a great job at at a very thankless part of sort of getting balder and sicker and sicker, you know, the dying woman role.
0: Mm -hmm. I I mean, I sort of... um... As I said, I love the movie. I think it is rated um, TMFAA, too mature for all audiences. Um, I sort of thought it was, it has no target audience at all. I mean, essentially, I mean, it's, I mean, I do think ultimately it's a grown up movie, but on the surface, at least it's not really a grown up movie. It's certainly not a kid's movie. I'd be very reluctant to take a kid any younger than Sam's youngest um, to go see it. It sort of disappeared. The other thing that I find interesting about it is it's, it, it, has a somewhat high concept that it completely muddles um, purposefully, almost didactically muddles along the way. I mean, the movie is didactically about how didactic lessons do not ultimately help you cope with life because life is untrue to them and vice versa. And I thought, funnily enough, that it was on the way to delivering that with a degree of psychological subtlety and complexity, as Sam says. And then had to hit it on the nose a few times, which sort of countered the very message itself. I mean, um, but in order to make a movie like this work, you have to make the central action of it, which really isn't the appearance of the U-tree CGI, impressively CGI U-tree monster. It's really the relationship between the boy and the mother. And you have to believe that they're really mother and son and that she's, really dying and that's not a manipulative street screenwriters trick and i thought a combination of the writing and also the directing i think this guy is really supple and really talented i don't know his work but apparently he's done other movies dana that people really admire i thought there are moments in that story that are so true um and completely heartbreaking um Uh, including the relationship with the father, the ultimately disappointing relationship with the father, but really especially the relationship between the boy that you, I mean, I really felt like I was watching a movie that was absolutely about a real child losing his mother and knowing it and not being able to psychologically cope with it. And so by necessity, he's envisioning this, you know, um, creature coming into his life. And that to me made the movie um, extraordinary. It's not, it's not not flawed. It certainly is flawed. But um, in terms of its ability to think about how grief might pervert itself into a form of inchoate self-hatred that might accompany someone through a whole life and that, that that's what this boy has been rescued from, that struck me as a remarkable thing for a movie to be successfully about.
2: Yeah, I think that's well put. And there are um, these kind of Huge, long stretches, these kind of giant tundras of silence in the movie that really surprised me. um you know, you could hear the kids in the theater sort of shuffling and eating popcorn and opening candy, mostly my children, for very long stretches um, in which those emotional sort of tides had had time to build up and kind of move in you in a way that was really unexpected for a you know a kind of young person's feel-good Hollywood movie to me.
1: Yeah, I see what you mean about the didacticism, Stephen, especially in the three stories that the monster tells. To me, there was a little bit, there were a little too obviously schematic in the way that sometimes stories within stories can be. But I think one of the most arresting things about this movie to me was the monster himself, his his. Animation, his vocalization by Liam Neeson, and the way he's used in the movie. He seems like he's he's part of this whole tradition of 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 plant creatures and movies. And I was thinking of other renderings of these organic vegetal creatures and movies. The one that first came to mind, which I think is a, is another great rendering, is in the second Hellboy movie, I think there's this big green, I don't know sort of the embodiment of nature, essentially. And mm-hmm. there's this moment that this sort of growing organic thing starts to take over like a downtown street and uh and this creature had a little bit of that that quality where you would actually see him turn from this tree into the creature the tree itself when it is not the creature is also an important figure in the movie something that the boy can see out of his bedroom window and just that that uh the idea of of nature kind of rising up as this force that the boy turns into a monster was really beautifully done i thought Mm
2: mm-hmm
0: Mm, right, and, like Groot or at the end of Moana. we yeah, yeah, well, a lot Groot of Groot in Guardians
1: of the Galaxy would be a comic mm-hmm. version. And then I also thought of, I don't know if you guys know Jan Svankmeyer at all, the Czech puppet Mm-mm. filmmaker. He's fantastic. Anyway, he had a movie called Little Otik that's really beautiful that's about this, this childless couple. It's sort of a folktale about this childless couple that eventually adopts or sort of has a child that's basically a log, like a bundle of sticks that, that comes to life. And I figured that that must be a very old imagery in folktales, right? Mm. This vegetal matter coming mm. to life. And something about something about the way that was rendered in this movie was very respectful of that tradition somehow. He wasn't trying to be a, you know, super rock and roll, you know, right. kind of CGI monster uh, of, yeah. of the 21st century. You know, he had something cathonic about him, sort of.
0: For oh, sure. Cthonic. That's, cathonic. that's cathonic. a catfest yeah. burst. <laughs> You want to spell chthonic for our listeners?
1: Isn't it C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C? <laughs> <laughs> what other in, word in, starts it, with C-H-T-H? D-
0: Dana, in the Liam Neeson voice, please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't want to ruin my vocal cords.
0: C H T H.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i misspelled it
0: that time oh <laughs> dear mm-hmm. i mean we can i think we can wrap not only the segment but the whole show put it to bed forever i mean we got dana stevens to spell chthonic and a liam neeson place. <laughs> so that's a monster calls it's in theaters now i'd love to hear what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culture okay moving on The discovery of what we call Neanderthals uh, in the fossil record more or less coincided with the advent of Charles Darwin. Our first and natural assumption about them was purely vain, that we were somehow better, smarter, more efficiently designed survival machine than they were. And it was very convenient, therefore, to think of Neanderthals as uh, ogres and losers with projecting brow lines and walking upon their knuckles. Well, it turns out research appears to have refuted these assumptions almost completely. Neanderthals are people too, or so argues John Muallam. in his summary of the latest research and his uh, contemplative essaying upon it. Dana, obviously we'll get into the kind of larger philosophical issues about um, whether we're peering into something other than a mirror when we try to study our early, early selves. But certainly one fascinating thing about this article is that these are our earlier selves. In fact, we coexisted and mated with Neanderthals perhaps for centuries. Um, And in fact, we ourselves have 1% to 2% of our own DNA code is Neanderthalic. Dana, what do you make of this uh, essay?
1: Well, for one thing, I'm really happy that Sam suggested we do this essay. I always love talking about archaeology, paleoanthropology, early man, anything like that is, is fascinating to me. And while I knew some of these facts about Neanderthals, like the fact, for example, that you mentioned that we share one to two percent of our DNA with them, the, the stuff that he discovers or that he dis- he discovers people discovering because he goes to Gibraltar, to the rock of Gibraltar, to a cave with some Neanderthal artifacts in it to watch the uh, the excavation of these artifacts... The stuff that he discovers that I didn't know so much about was how close the Neanderthals were to early man in terms of their use of tools, in terms of their even creation of art like sort of scratchings on rock that seemed to be that seemed to be a useless and therefore probably in some way symbolic creation. But the stuff that I didn't know has more to do with the artifacts that the Neanderthals used, the extent to which they were like early humans in their creation of s- symbolic or at least useless and probably symbolic art-like works, like these scratches on a rock that he describes at the end of the essay. So we can get into sort of the, the more philosophical questions about what what is the beginning of man, What what is it that we define as the line between man and, and non-man, the non-human. But just in terms of the actual reporting of this excavation at Gibraltar, I, I learned a lot from this article, and I it thought it was really fascinating.
0: mm mm-hmm yeah sam what did what did you make of it? I think first of all, it's a
2: really brilliant piece of writing and um I think the only word for it really is is an essay. It's an essay, and fundamentally more even than it's about these kind of historical discoveries about Neanderthals and Steve, by the way, just setting up a clear uh, in group, out group division here. You know, Dana and I are going to say Neanderthal, which is the correct pronunciation I and think the kind I of German I tried to blur it just now, uh, and you, you, you're saying the sort of debased Americanized version,
0: Neanderthal. Uh-huh. Uh, just so we're clear on that, it's because I'm a human. <laughs> Amazing.
2: Uh, so I thought it was a really beautiful essay about you know, kind of using this historical discussion to talk about really um the power of storytelling and how much contingency plays a role in storytelling on a grand historical level in like in in terms of deep time and how we use these stories to define who is us and who is not us and he does a lot of work braiding in kind of contemporary concerns he was in Gibraltar um during the Brexit vote and it turns out that Gibraltar is like a is like an English a British territory yeah a, yeah, I did a, not a know British territory that. Um, And so it was very heavily invested in this vote and actually wanted desperately to remain and not be cut off and be this little sliver of Spain. So there was that drama going on while he was there. And he braids that back into this question of who counts as human. Um, And he makes a pretty compelling case that Neanderthals uh, are people, too, as he says.
1: It's also a great kind of. Survey of the history of science, because he talks about the history of the reception of Neanderthal mm-hmm. artifacts, right and and the different ways that they were interpreted, including, you know, all kinds of phrenological racist interpretations mm-hmm. back in the nineteenth century. So it also sort of serves as a as an intellectual survey in that way,
0: yeah, right. And it, but here's my question. I'm curious to get both of your reactions on it, which is it, I agree it's a it, Sam, you're absolutely right. It's an essay, and I agree with both of you that it's brilliant. Um, And I learned a tremendous amount from it. But there's the obligatory paragraph where he says, oh, this isn't a hall of relativistic mirrors. I just want to be absolutely plain. You know, I have a faith in science. And um, he doesn't announce outright a faith faith in science, but he definitely feels obliged to say that he's not taking us down a postmodernist rabbit hole in which, you know, science determ- is isn't, isn't progressive and doesn't get us progressively closer to the truth and yet weirdly enough i felt like all of the evidence that he marshals in the piece essentially tells us that this kind of science is very often a mirror to the cultural present tense in a way um and i was waiting for that circle to be closed i mean maybe i missed it but um sam what do you think is it is it plain in the piece what he's saying in that regard do we only look in a mirror when we start trying to do these kinds of digs and piece together who our um, ancestral cousins were.
2: Wow. That's a big question that you just (laughs) laid at my feet there. (laughs) Um, I, I don't think he solves that and I'm not sure that's the main thrust of his argument. If anything, he's, he does show pretty clearly the ways that previous in previous centuries, um, people came to very strong conclusions that were absolutely just uh, projections of their own kind of belief systems. You know, Neanderthals were these kind of uh, clod heads who were immoral and ungodly because these were uh, Christian scientists who were uh, kind of reading the tea leaves of what was left behind. I mean, one guiding metaphor here is one of the um, archaeologists, I think, says to him, it's as if they're trying to put together a a jigsaw puzzle, like a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle with like 5% of the puzzle or something like that. We are operating on some teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of evidence that has survived. And as humans with human brains, what we do is we fill in all the gaps with these little sort of shortcuts, mental shortcuts, heuristics as they're called. Um, And I think that's what we do about everything in our lives on every level.
1: Well, and that, I think, is, is, is where he's able to tie his present day experience in with these reflections on, you know, 30,000 or whatever it is, years of experience, which is that this essay is sort of about the rejection of the grand unifying theory, right? And that, that throughout archaeological history, there's been this attempt to create some absolute divide between the human and the pre-human to decide whether Neanderthals were killed off by humans or whether they simply interbred and disappeared or by what what by what by means they died off while we survived, right? And that cannot be understood without a hierarchy of value in much of history. And I think what Moellum is trying to do in some ways, look at it as a relationship of, I think he uses this word, just pure contingency, that it may simply have been the case that these two species, which did apparently evolve separately, it was not the case that people came from Africa, populated Eurasia, and Neanderthals came from that. The Neanderthals actually sprung up independently in Eurasia and never existed in Africa, right? And so all these attempts to understand the relationship between those two early cultures may be over-interpretation on on the part of of we moderns, right? And that, in fact, they may simply have coexisted in different ways in different parts of the Earth at different times, and there may be no one huge a comet killed the dinosaurs sort of answer as to why one triumphed over the other.
0: Right, and Dana, you use a beautiful phrase, which is hierarchy of values, which is that even, I mean, the, the advent of Darwin in modern thought was supposed to completely destroy any sense of, you know, our... Perch at the top of some hierarchy of the universe's values, you know, that we were we're really a, a con- complete contingency in a way. And yet, I think probably even among dyed-in-the-wool naturalists and Darwinists, it's still hard to get your head around that completely, right? That we're not an inevitability over time and that we don't sit perched at the top of, you know, some totally perspicuous uh, hierarchy of values at all. And this that's what this article did. For me, that, that was what was sort of most destabilizing, that it's one thing to think, well, we might never have existed at all. It's, it's way more challenging, I think, to our self-image, Sam, to think that something actually quite like us, but not us, might have been here in our place. Absolutely.
1: I would only add to that that another thing in praise of this essay, we can't stop praising this essay, but it's just that John Wallum is really funny. He's a very funny observer and reporter of things. And there's a moment at the end where he goes to visit these two Dutch twins whose job is to Mm -hmm. be sculptors. I Mm -hmm. guess you would call them, what are they? They create sculpted figures of various forms of extinct... Humans mm-hmm. and especially Neanderthals—that's kind of their specialty. Anyway, the, the encounter that he has with these two enthusiastic, shouting Dutch twins who are excitedly showing him all the their skulls and various wax figures is just is also a really fun excursion. In this and essay. how
2: they—they're obsessed mm-hmm. with the idea of what humans do with their hands when they don't have pockets, right? Which, yeah. which
1: John Willem says, I never thought about this because I've always had pockets, right,
0: right. Mm-hmm. Well, the essay is called Neanderthals Were People Too. It's by John Mualim. It's uh, appeared in the Sunday Times. You can check it out online. Let us know what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dane. Mm, Dana. (laughs) Dana.
1: All right, well, my endorsement actually was semi-inspired by you, Sam Anderson, because do you remember a few years ago? I believe it was before you were... a Staff writer at the magazine, but you wrote something about marginalia and your own Uh your end of year marginalia in books. Right. Uh Uh Well, it so happens that this week I came across on the great website, Open Culture, some uh, some samples of Mark Twain's marginalia. Uh I don't remember if you mentioned him in your article or if you know know anything about his marginalia. I didn't until I came across this piece, but it's just so funny and great. I highly recommend it. And I'll just read the one that's the main illustration for the piece. It's the title page of Plutarch's Lives in the copy belonging to Mark Twain. And I'll just read and I'll try to show in my voice when his his annotations come in. Plutarch's Lives of Illustrious Men, translated from the Greek into rotten English by John Dryden and others. The whole carefully revised and corrected by an ass. (laughs) <laughs> oh burn! so uh yeah mark mark twain apparently just read his books with a very sharp pencil and sharp tongue at the mm-hmm. ready and uh, and his marginalia is absolutely great that's just the first one in there so you can you can go through this open culture post and see photographs of you know the yellowed pages of his books with his snarky little comments on the side i could go through and read many more all right just to give you another example Notes in the margin of Landon D. Melville's Saratoga in 1901 show that it fared no better. Twain, it appears, renamed the volume, dubbing it Saratoga in 1891 or The Droolings of an Idiot. (laughs) 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 So whether or not you're familiar with any of the uh, musty 19th century titles he's snarking on, I think you would appreciate this post. Again, it's open culture, Mark Twain's marginalia, and we'll put a link to it on our show page.
0: Fantastic. Sam, what do you have?
2: Um, I have a Christmas gift that I bought for my son. Uh, I was in a bookstore and I happened upon a collection of the early 1950s Peanuts comics. I remembered as a kid reading these these kind of roaming collections of of Peanuts, and every once in a while at my grandmother's house, I'd run across one where the characters looked very different. They had very round heads. The art was much simpler. Snoopy looked like an actual sort of puppy dog and um it turns out those were kind of the early days of the strip and so my son and i started reading they're so brilliant it's like such a pure delight um and you just see kind of this great classic american artist working out all of these characters the art is drastically simplified the characters are drastically simplified personalities are kind of shifting and and still finding themselves. Charlie Brown is kind of mean a lot of the time, um, especially in the early ones. Uh, In fact, the very first strip from 1950, uh, Charlie Brown doesn't say anything. He's he's walking, you see him in the distance, he's walking down the street and there's two other kids sitting and watching him come. and, And one of the kids says, well, here comes old Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown is passing them. And he says, good old Charlie Brown. Yes, sir. And then he's gone out of the frame. And the kid says, good old Charlie Brown. And then he says, "How I hate him!" <laughs> <laughs> so you just have all these kind of emotional notes that you don't get in in you know the the more familiar greeting card friendly later Peanuts, and the art is just so beautiful. And there's and so much of the comedy is like um, Snoopy has these prehensile ears that he can lift and do stuff with and people will set water glasses on them (laughs) occasionally and there's all this comedy that's just like it's like silent comedy reminding me of buster keaton or charlie chaplin or something where you know snoopy's lifting an ear and it just that's this like explosive joke all of a sudden and it's just really wonderful and there's these so these collections by fantagraphics books um I think there's like 26 volumes because it goes it's it's the complete peanuts. It goes from the very beginning to the very end. And um, we are just working through the second volume now and are just loving it every night.
1: Do you have any idea, Sam, why that drawing style changed? Was it because he syndicated the comic or what was the the breaking point between the old and the new Charlie Brown?
2: I mean, I assume it's just the kind of artistic progress of doing something year after year for 50 years or whatever it was, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can see the same thing in Doonesbury, right? He was very crude at first, and mm-hmm. or the Simpsons or anything right. like that. Yeah, that's yeah. no, the same yeah. thing. Yeah. All right. Well, my endorsement um, is uh, I I have to admit I've never connected with the work of the poet W. S. Merwin, which um, you know most right thinking people regard as a titan of American poetry. For no reason in particular, it just never, never really connected to me. And, um, and then I read a poem this weekend called For a Coming Extinction. It's so powerful and so dark. It really has the force almost of biblical prophecy. And I, if it's okay, I'd just like to read a little bit of it just to give people the flavor of it. Gray whale, now that we are sending you to the end, that great God, tell him that we who follow you invented forgiveness and forgive nothing. And then it ends with, when you will not see again the whale calves trying the light, Consider that you will find in the Black Garden and its court the sea cows, the great ox, the gorillas, the irreplaceable hosts ranged countless, and foreordaining as stars, our sacrifices. Join your word to theirs. Tell him that it is we who are important. I th- this poem, I, very rarely have I read a poem, and it just leveled me and stayed with me because I think what the poem is p- pretty definitely about is our extinction our coming extinction which is foretold and foreordained in our ability to overcome the earth to the point that it wipes out you know the great ox and the gorillas and the sea cows and the gray whale and um he's essentially sending this message on behalf of humanity or in the voice of humanity via the gray whale which is about to go extinct to you know god which is sort of depicted as the end the terminus um and um and it's spoken in the voice of human vanity which just can't forestall its devouring powers and fails to see as a, its own fate in, um as foretold by these other extinctions and so you should read that last stanza join your word to theirs tell him that it is we who are important it's just it's just unbelievable it's got it's just kind of old testament power to it anyway so W.S. Merman I, I advise you to go find this poem if you if you're inclined for a coming extinction all right happy thoughts Dana thanks
1: Stephen thank you very much
0: Sam thank you so much for coming on the show thank you very much you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culture at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page facebook.com slash culturefest. our producer is Benjamin Frisch our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network. Check out an entire roster of wonderful shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Sam Anderson and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you We'll see you soon.